The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. trip of wrestling i am your host jp john pause we have a very very special guest host today mr Derek o'reilly the dublin destroyer the man from dublin ireland Derek, how's everything going we have very special guests with us yeah not too bad not too bad i can't complain really um quiet day quite cold but very quiet too lockdown is not much fun nice i could imagine that for sure now of course Joining us is a very special guest. He is an MMA and a pro wrestling journalist. You may know him from the PW Torch, Sure Dog, or even the LA Times, Mr. Todd Martin. Todd, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great, JP. Glad to be on. Now, Derek, I'll kind of let you start because you are loving Todd. You love his work. I love it as well. But you said, you know, there's one guy you wanted to talk to above all others. So please uh, get the ball rolling. Well, basically, I've I've listened to Todd quite a few times, but I've never noticed him on many other shows, and I thought it was kind of time to to get that barrier broken down. Um, Todd is very, very articulate in his work. He knows quite a lot about a range of different topics, and I would like to start off, Todd, by asking you how you got into uh, the reporting business. You do a very, very uh, in-depth review of both wrestling and MMA in general. Where did it all begin for you? Um, I mean, I guess I sort of started on a lark back in, in college as I would occasionally send in things to Dave Meltzer when, uh, with, of the Wrestling Observer. And in terms of like uh, just letters to the editor, uh, reports on TV shows, to, uh, reports on shows that I went to live, stuff like that. And he encouraged me to do more. And at one point when there was uh, an opening to do reports of Raw, I said, you know, what the heck, this will be a fun thing to do and started writing Raw reports every week and uh, kept doing that for many years. Um, the, I think I picked a good point to get off, which was when they went to three hours. I think in uh, in hindsight, that was a good a good idea to not subject myself to trying to write a report of, of, of a three-hour Raw every week. Um, around the time, I started doing podcasts with Brian Alvarez, also on the Observer site, and uh, then... Um, went to the torch and, and do the podcast, the, the the fix with Wade every week on the torch. On the MMA side, I just got fortunate in terms of being able to write for more mainstream outlets because when I went to Los Angeles to start law school in 2004, it was right around the time MMA was really starting to blow up. 2005 was the Ultimate Fighter. 2006 was their pay-per-view explosion. And so there just weren't a lot of people at that point in time that were uh, – very knowledgeable about MMA that could, you know, write to some degree. And so that opened up some opportunities there. And I started covering more MMA stuff. And it's just sort of been a side gig since then that I, I do, uh, I, I do for fun, but, um, you know, I think it's an, you know, an enjoyable little thing to devote time to. 
Well, you're quite busy, uh, Todd. I mean, JP, this guy does an extreme in-depth review of MMA and he does New Japan, Impact Wrestling, WWE, and of course, AEW. You know, he pretty much analyzes everything and he does it in, as I said, the most articulate detail possible. Um, I don't actually know anybody that has reviewed quite as well as Todd. He always comes up with, with good suggestions too. So, you know, it's... I just think there's a lot more that we can learn that we can learn from Todd and I'm really glad to have him here today. And Todd, that would also bring me to a question then. If you could relate, what do you think the biggest difference is between today's wrestling and what we're seeing right now and the attitude era and even the early to mid nineties? Um, first of all, th- thank you very much for the kind words, Derek. I, I very much appreciate that. Um I mean, I think the biggest difference in in the change in wrestling, and it's largely come from Major League Pro Wrestling in the United States. I think wrestling in in Mexico is largely similar to what it was during those periods. Wrestling in Japan, not as popular, but I think largely the same. Wrestling in the States has definitely changed. And I think the biggest difference in the wrestling business is a switch from a focus on the stories to a focus on the in-ring. And that when you were a fan in the 90s, the thing that drove interest in the product was the idea of the stories uh, stories underlying what was going on. It wasn't necessarily what's going to be the most exciting match. It was larger than life characters. And so when The Undertaker comes along, and later on Undertaker became a great worker, but earlier on Undertaker not the best matches all the time. Um, Kane, not the greatest, not the greatest wrestler in the world. Um, obviously, on the WCW side, when they were exploding, it was built around Hulk Hogan, Sting, Goldberg. You know, they they weren't the the top tier wrestlers of the day. And so, I think the key um, during that time period was the idea of who are the big stars, who are the 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 personalities that capture the fan interest. And over time, I think in significant part because Dedeby lost touch with a lot of their fan base in terms of the storytelling. There was a long push of, of John Cena past the point where people were really as into him in that top babyface role. The push of Roman Reigns when fans weren't as in, into him in that role. A lot of fans left and a lot of fans checked out of investing significantly in the storytelling to investing more in the matches. And the appeal for people tuning in weekend was, I'll get some great in-ring wrestling. And if the stories aren't as good, that doesn't matter as much because I just want to see the you know great wrestlers having good in-ring action. And that was always around to some degree. But I think that was the minority of the audience for most of the time that wrestling's been around. And frankly, I think if wrestling were more popular, you would see more of a return towards the storytelling related, the storytelling being more predominant part because I think that's the larger base of the potential audience you can get. But the people that are tuning in now, it's much more based around the around the action. And the the promotion that I think of is being key to that, although WWE was one that shaped it. But I just think of, of Pro Wrestling Gorilla. And the primary independent group before that um, was ECW and ROH. And ECW particularly, but ROH as well, was built much more around the storytelling, around who is champion, who is going to dethrone the champion in the early days. And PWG threw a lot of that away. Didn't have a lot of storytelling. Didn't have a lot of storylines. Who was who were the champions didn't matter that much. It was just about getting great wrestlers from different promotions, different parts of the world, putting together 
letting them have great matches. And over time, that was what fans wanted. And that's, I think, the way people view the lens, the lens through which people view the business much more now than they did back in the Attitude Era. And how do you feel about that, JP? It is definitely interesting how it's changed so much. I mean, to the Hogan's of the world, the Warriors of the world, not known as being the greatest workers, although you could say putting butts in seats or asses in seats, Hogan might be one of the greatest workers. But as far as work rate, it's changed so much in wrestling where you're right. People just care about the wrestling and not so much about investing in, oh, I I don't want to see this guy get beat up or or, like, I love this guy. You get emotionally attached. You know, back in the day, uh, even when the NWO came, you're like, you know, you become obsessive as a fan watching that stuff. You're like, man, I, I'm, I'm so invested in the characters. I'm so invested in the guys. The, are they going to attack WCW? What's going to go on with Sting? I mean, there's so many different things. Nowadays, it's none of that, really. You get none of, none of the larger than life characters. None of the guys kind of are as compelling. But I think a lot of the fans that, that, that were watching each and every week, they just want to see good matches. And I think that's kind of different than uh, what I grew up in, in in my wrestling fandom, for sure. Well, when I when I began, it was actually 2000. And what used to grab me every single week was the promos and the build-up to matches. So the way I used to view it was this way. Each week on television, I loved it to begin with a good promo. I thought that set up the show. And generally, that set up a main event segment in most cases. So when you have somebody like Stone Cold Steve Austin running down to the ring, telling somebody he's going to kick their ass or... He's going to take it out on anybody he sees that night. I always kind of found that that was something that would really keep you engaged. So you wouldn't necessarily know that, okay, well, for 20 minutes, we're going to have just a boring match. You never know when he's going to show up and so on. You can think of, um, I remember when Austin came back from his neck injury in 2000 and he kept stunning everybody every week. Because as he said, he doesn't know who ran him over, so he's going to wield his way through every last one of them. That's only one example, of course. But what I'm basically saying is you have these stars, and it's must, it was must-see television. That, Of course, that's my opinion. That's what gripped me at the time. And today, I'll be honest, I have not watched one WWE program since 2017 because it has slowly, slowly worn me down bit by bit by bit. So I'm finding it very tough now to find any interest whatsoever. And I don't like that because I really want to be watching something like that week in, week out right now, especially during lockdown. I think it was the best time. Todd, I personally feel when WWE, when the COVID first hit last March, they could have shut down that program for even a month and they could have been doing vignettes building something up and they could have completely rethought everything they were doing. They could have had a small show each week, as I say, with vignettes and things like that, just to get people interested and also to give the talent a break as well from matches and so on. You know, okay, it wasn't ideal at the time, but I just felt that the whole pandemic, which was viewed very largely as negative, could have been something quite positive for them. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult from a financial standpoint to give up the television revenue. So you have to run something. And I think that there's a, a difficulty in finding a way to put together a wrestling show that doesn't have some of the sort of basics of a pro wrestling show, things like, you know, promos and, and things like matches. But in terms of the overall structure of the show, um, I think a lot of people, including myself, have ho- been hoping for quite a while that you would see a 
a full scale rethinking of what's going on because there's a very inevitably there's a very pat formula of the way they do things and the way the show looks, the way the show sounds, the way the show feels, and it's very homogenized. It doesn't create stars out of the wrestlers because they feel like they're part of the um, just sort of part, you know, just a cog in the wheel. And yeah, I mean, I think there's been a demand and a, I think a, a an opportunity for WWE to rethink a lot of those things and to shape a show that would grab people's attention more than they have. But we just haven't seen from Vince McMahon, I think, an ability to recognize the parts of wrestling that are missing these days and to recapture them. And I think when you, when you talk about the promos, I think that's really a key to the whole thing. And, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's central. I was talking about earlier because the pro wrestling business historically has been always centered on the idea of using promos to get people invested and wanting to see matches. And, the, what we get from DDB these days is longer promos. And, and part of that is, is difficult because I mean, part of that is just the fact that they have so much time to fill. And so it's difficult to go in there and say, you're only going two minutes. Cause then we got to make up the other eight minutes somewhere, but pro wrestling promos historically in terms of what's worked about them is a short to the point description of why one person wants to kick another person's ass that's pro wrestling promo in a nutshell and when you get them out there and they're making cultural references and they're talking about what else is on the show and they're just sort of talking in this sort of sing-songy you know way with the you know corporate buzzwords mixed in it doesn't grab you to care about what that match is and if the wrestlers don't feel that invested in winning their match over their opponent, the fans aren't going to feel that invested in, in, in the in the matches seeing uh, in in seeing them defeat their opponent. And so, yeah, I think a big key to making the shows more compelling, and I think this is a big advantage that AEW has, um, is if they refocused on the way people speak on the show and a much higher percentage of people speaking on the show was people seeming genuinely, um, you know, very focused um, on their goals and on winning matches. And it, it was funny. It, it, there was a, a UFC show this past weekend um, with a, a, a fighter that isn't even a particularly big star, Kamara Usman, um, who's, you know, a Nigerian American uh, wrestler who's not, particularly known for his persuasive promos or anything like that. But after the fight took place with, with his victory, he, you know, he walked back for this, this interview and he's intense. He's focused. It's not a pro wrestling promo and like in a, well, I mean, I guess you could sort of draw analogies, but he's not trying to do pro wrestler shtick. He just talked about how important it was that people paid respect, how good he was as a fighter and how important it was that he proved just how good he was. And he talked about his upcoming fight that he wanted to make. He talked about why it was important to prove that he was better than this other guy with this intensity and this conviction to it. And it wasn't showy in any way. You watch that thing, you thought, number one, this guy is really good. Number two, this guy really cares about whether he wins or loses. And that's the sort of thing I think you could benefit more from, from pro wrestling. And there are people there that can do it. I mean, Kevin Owens can do that. Daniel Bryan can do that. Roman Reigns can do that. Drew McIntyre can do that. But I think too often they're not asked to do that. You only see that 
around WrestleMania season. And I think if you saw that more week in and week out, it would improve the show. JP, did you yourself watch the uh, UFC pay-per-view last Saturday night? I did not, but I saw the highlights and I saw Usman uh, starched Burns pretty good. I actually thought Burns may win because it seemed like he was so confident going into the fight like because he's his former training partner. I thought maybe he had an edge or he had something where he thought that he could, I don't know, ha- had the advantage or something. So I thought Burns was going to win. So not that I was surprised that Usman won, but just surprised how he won. And uh, you know, I believe it was in the third round, but I, I was just surprised. I thought maybe it would go the distance and, and Burns would probably scratch it out. But Man, Usman, he's got something there. I don't know. His post-fight interview, I saw parts of it. He's got something there that's intriguing. But GSP said he's still bored by him. He's not interested, not motivated by him. Uh, But Masvidal came out and said he wants a rematch, even though he lost pretty uh, soundly the last time. Unanimous decision, 50-45. I would like to see just run back just because I like Masvidal. Maybe there's a chance he might knock somebody out, but I don't know if that's in the cards. For Usman, even though the last one did do pretty good uh, pay-per-view buy rates. But with him, I like him because he's so good. And, and I like watching excellence. If the guy, I mean, he's 18-1 and one or whatever, you know. I like watching those guys that just keep winning. Anderson Silva for an extended period of time. Maybe, you know, he wasn't that great. He couldn't really speak English very well. Or maybe he wasn't as charismatic as he could have been. But he was so excellent. You just want to see him win. John Jones I'm not a big fan of. But he's just so excellent and he's so good and he keeps winning. You just keep wanting to see the guy fight. So it's just one of those things with Usman. I like him, but to a point, I feel like uh, his promo skills, maybe those UFC guys needs to work on their promo skills a little bit. I think a lot of them do. Um, Connor is the only one and Colby Covington, from what I can see that has really mastered it to an extent. Covington is excellent at drawing heat. Obviously, Connor has been doing that for quite some time now as well. But that was actually going to lead me to a question for Todd. Todd, you were speaking of the lack of respect in some ways that Usman Usman generates. I had a couple of arguments with um, a couple of people on social media about Usman because the fight with Masvidal, a lot of people were saying, oh, you know, this is this is boring. And had he just stood with Masvidal, he would have lost the fight. And I was trying to explain, more my fault than theirs, I guess. Um, I was trying to explain that mixed martial arts is exactly that, a mixture. There is a game plan. We may not always like it, but these guys are out there to win how they think they are going to win. And on that occasion, Usman won fairly comfortably. It's not entertaining. I understand that. But I do also think there is a difference between what Usman did, what Daniel Cormier did to Anderson Silva at UFC 200. You may remember that, Todd. And then you have... I was there. Oh, you were there. Very good. Mm-hmm. And then you have um, the other fight I was going to mention between um, the Harb, the well, you remember Adesanya and Romero, which unfortunately for them was also on the same night in which Wei Li Zheng was fighting Joanna Jacek, which was arguably probably most likely the greatest female fight of all time. And then they they come up with that afterwards, which is just with the worst timing possible. What is your opinion on those type of fights, you know, that are more strategy based, but in some cases almost almost too too fake to watch in a sense, if you understand what I mean? 
Well, I mean, MMA has always been about finding the things that you are comfortably better at than your opponent. And there are there certainly are examples of fighters that have had prolonged success being more of a specialist. But the fighters that have had success over longest periods are the ones who have a, diver, a diversified set of skills and are able to find ways to exploit the weaknesses of each opponent. And it, if you're if one is critical of, of Kamara Usman, I mean, his, his, his top contender for the top welterweight um, of all time uh, was George St. Pierre, who was an expert at doing those sorts of things of finding if it was someone that didn't have enough of a wrestling base to prevent him from getting takedowns. He'd just take them down over and over again. If they had better wrestling, but he could outstrike them, he'd just outstrike them and comfortably, uh, you know, comfortably take advantage of that, component of the game if they didn't have as good of a submission game he'd go after the submissions so that's that's always been what the sport i think is about is finding the way that you're a little bit better than your opponent in this way and i mean that sort of game of chess is what i find interesting about mma because you know the best boxers uh you know, they'll, they'll eventually lose as, as they get older, but you have boxers that are really good and, and really tactical in terms of what they're able to do. There's only so much you can do with a really good defensive boxer. So Floyd Mayweather just dominates year in and year out. With MMA, there's so many different ways you can approach beating an opponent that you don't have to be the best at anything. All you have to do is find that opening. You know, if it's a guy that's a really good wrestler, find the way to crack him striking. If it's a guy that's a really good jujitsu guy, keep it on his feet. If it's a guy that's a, a really good striker, take him to the ground. And that's that's exciting about the sport because there's always that vulnerability. And we've seen with Usman specifically, he was a guy that came from a wrestling background, really good cardio. But over the past few fights, we've seen his striking improve a lot. And you have to be able to do that in order to succeed at the top levels. And Todd, I will ask you and actually JP, who do you think past and present could have been the best guy to transfer from UFC to WWE? Well, that's a tough one. Do you want to take that one first, JP, while I'm thinking about this? Hmm. It's interesting to see all the guys that kind of morphed over. Obviously, Shamrock, Severn, Lesnar were all wrestlers first and then went into ultimate fighting and stuff. So it's like, hmm, who would be great? I feel like maybe all time, Chael P. Sonnen would be a great pro wrestler. Uh, such a great promo guy. Always smarter than the other guy. Obviously, he has the wrestling background, so that kind of would work, too. I always thought he would be a great one. I, For some reason, I always kind of liked – I know he did pro wrestling, but I always kind of thought that Kevin Randleman and Mark Coleman, they had something where they could have done – because they're so intense, you would like believe them as like those – I know they did some wrestling in Japan and stuff, but they were like so believable. I feel like they could have had a career in in pro wrestling um i don't know i probably would have to go chael p son and just because he's such a good promo and he's got a wrestling background where you you know he's a real ass kicker yeah so as far as like a current mma guy that's the one i'm struggling with a, a little bit more because as we talked about earlier um pro wrestling has become much more about the in-ring so in the past if you just sort of had a good way of carrying yourself you came across as tough you came across as a good talker that could really get you most of the way now i think you have to sort of think about who are the guys that are really good athletes on top of being good talkers where you think they'd be able to have good matches in the ring at least at an acceptable level relatively early on um 
And so, I mean, this is sort of like an out of, you know, out of left field pick because he's not a good talker, but I wonder what you could do with Francis Ngannou, who's really big, really athletic, looks the part. And I think if he came in there and he was able to pick up some of the athletics of it, that there could be intrigue of the idea of him in MMA, in pro wrestling rather. As far as like historically, I, I look back at the same time period JP is. The guy that came to mind, and he was another person that was doing some of those uh, those you know hustle shows and, and various pro wrestling shows during those days is Boss Rutten, who was just had an incredible personality, great charisma, and a really good athlete. And I think if Boss had been physically healthy enough to get into pro wrestling, I think he could have been really good at it. He did a little bit of pro wrestling, mm-hmm. not a lot, but I just interviewed him not that long ago. And he was saying that pro wrestling is tougher than MMA. And I thought that was kind of funny because some of the MMA guys say that, but if you ask the wrestler, the wrestler would say the MMA is tougher. So I just found that funny. It's like boss Rudin, arguably one of the all time greats is saying pro wrestling is tougher than MMA kind of uh, says a lot about pro wrestling. I think. Yeah, a lot of a lot of MMA guys are, are are very respectful of the grind that it puts on the body, and you know I've I've heard a number of of uh, of MMA fighters who have dabbled in pro wrestling that have, have said that. So many good ones. If you think about like how many good uh, pro wrestlers went to MMA, my favorite one would have to be Sakuraba, as far as wrestling into MMA. So good. Who the hell would have known that the Gracies and their legacy would be destroyed by a pro wrestler? <laughs> a, a genius, with one with a genius like you. But uh, you know what I mean? It's just so funny to think about it. Like Arguably one of the all-time greats, Sakuraba. Maybe if he fought in his correct weight class, he'd probably be definitely remembered as, as the all-time great. But it's just funny. Like, hey, uh, the Gracies, nobody could beat him. They're the best. How about this Japanese pro wrestler? Let's see what he's got. And he just destroys them all. Such a great story yeah i would say sakuraba inarguably one of the all-time greats that that guy probably more than anyone else was was responsible for me really becoming a big fan of MMA. can't believe he's basically a 170 guy fighting at heavyweight and light heavyweight so it's like man imagine if he fought guys his own weight class he'd be he would have been a killer and he fought it later on in his career after all those injuries and stuff but man if he i consider him one of the all-time greats it's just so good and his resume is just unreal yeah, I, me personally, I was thinking of Jail Sonnen too, but again, Todd makes a good point about in the present status, it's a lot more difficult because we're speaking mainly about athleticism. So that'd be something I'd have to think about a bit more. The only, the only thing that jumps out at me a little bit, Todd, I don't know what you'll think of this one. You know, surely uh, Valerie Lareda from Bellator, with her look, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and her youth, I can just see her as a like a, a Carmella type of figure in WWE and then just add the athleticism in there and you've got someone that can pull in really good heat but someone that would also really look like a superstar week in week out because of the natural beauty she has do you see any resemblance there at all yeah I mean that's something that when the uh when WWE has looked at people has been have been focused on are the people they think um have a, a good cosmetic look for it. I mean they had the interest in Paige Van Sant for uh for a little while as well, I think for similar reasons. Well now she's in bare knuckle fight uh bare knuckle fight boxing, but she hasn't um it hasn't been quite as bad a start for her as they as they imagined. A lot of people were expecting her to have quite a messed up face after her first fight and it didn't quite work out that way. Did you watch that show? I didn't, unfortunately. It wasn't available here. Um, she got beat, beat bad. <laughs> well, oh, the funny thing, 
the, the funny thing about it was was that the first fight of the show was a women's fight, and it was just a brutal women's fight. You know, it was like they at the end of the fight they they hugged, and you could just see the blood all over their faces. There was markings all over the place. It was just like, oh boy, like you know, like this is um, not exactly the advertisement for. Um, you know, uh, bare knuckle boxing for somebody with, you know, with a, a reputation for being very uh, attractive. Paige didn't get that sort of damage. She lost the fight, but I mean, she didn't come out of it, you know, badly scarred. But that's the, the whole problem with that is that even if you're not taking as much damage um, in terms of like, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, more, more lasting damage, bare knuckle boxing just cosmetically leaves you looking a lot worse because you don't, you don't have the hands wrapped up. So you're just, you know, taking these bruises and these bumps on your face that um, isn't the case as much with MMA. Was she recently at the performance center page? Is that what triple H had said that she was down there recently or no? I remember she was there, but I think it was a little while ago. I think it was like a year ago or so, if, if I recall correctly. Quite a while ago now. Yeah, unfortunately, um, we aren't able to see any bare knuckle uh, fighting over here. The only show they had on was before was Artem Lobov and Polly Maginelli. So that was the last time um, I made a small boot with there, guys. I'm sorry. I only saw the result. I think they said it went to it went to finish. And from the pictures that I saw, her face wasn't too mashed up. And I was kind of expecting more of a, a brutalization of Paige Van Zandt because it was a real step up from, from where she was. And Dana was happy to let her go too. So I was kind of concerned about that one. But as you said, she was heavily beaten anyway. So there you go. She seems like she'd be a perfect fit for Bellator. You know what I mean? It seems like Scott Coker always likes the athletic girls, obviously, but he always kind of goes for that cosmetic look as well. I'm surprised that she didn't end up in Bellator or hasn't ended up there. I was a little surprised by that too. Yeah, I was I was expecting that was her most likely uh place. But the fact that she didn't end up there probably suggests that they didn't think that she was uh she was worth the money that she was commanding. Um so you know, it happens. Bellator has been a little bit, bit strange over the last couple of years and that you get the sense that they can't open up their pocketbook as they could before. Um, but they'll still pick and choose the people they're most interested in. So, you know, they, some of them, they, you know, cap captures their attention and others, uh, others don't as much. I wonder how much they're paying Fedor. I know he comes with his whole team. I mean, he gets to, you get the whole crew of all those undefeated fighters or one loss fighters. I mean, Every division has an awesome fighter, but I wonder how much he's costing them. Yeah, I'm not sure with like all of the the throw-ins, but it you know I would I would assume it's going into seven figures each fight. Well, I've noticed the last fight I saw was Ali Malay McFarlane losing losing the belt, and I remember that she said she was actually glad she lost because of the pressure. I think that really shows what life can be like as an MMA fighter. The fact that someone can actually come out and say, I was glad to lose that fight. Yeah, a number of so people. Defending the belt again and again. Very, very tough. I mean, these guys, they put themselves through an awful lot in the build-up to fights and, you know, all the fasting and so on. There's so much work and effort that goes into it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people said that. Matt Hughes said that George St. Pierre, when he retired, he focused much more on just sort of the grind of the psychological grind of defending the title. It was it was a very interesting description because it wasn't, you know, he said he still enjoyed the training. He didn't even say that he didn't, he still enjoyed the, the fighting, but it was just 
the the mental focus to know all these people are coming after you and to stay focused on um on, on the prize it's a you know it's i think it's a very a very psychologically challenging um endeavor which is why you know you don't tend to have a lot of longevity as a you know champion mma and do you think that gsp is more afraid of a fight with kamara usman at the minute or it's just a case where he's just not that interested that he only wants to be fight for example I mean, he's 39. I think he's turning 40 pretty soon. I, I don't, I don't see like a lot of benefit in him fighting somebody right in his prime at the top of his game. I mean, it just, I don't think it would prove a lot. It would, I think he'd, you know, he'd make a lot of money, but he'd lose the fight. And I think he realizes that. And I don't think it would reflect on his, his legacy any, I, I think George should, should stay retired. I mean, he has a, a beautiful, a beautiful record. I think he's the, the greatest of all time. No unavenged loss over the course of his career. Um, I, I, I think that if he came back, it would just be for the money. I don't. I don't think that he'd have a great shot of beating Kamara Usman at age forty, which is no knock on him. If it was a thirty-three-year-old George St. Pierre against a thirty-three-year-old Kamara Usman, I'd, I'd probably take George. My only problem with St. Pierre is, and why I don't consider him the greatest, his resume isn't as good as let's just say, like I don't know. I feel like Anderson Silva may have a better resume, not of just the wins, but of the guys he fought. I know that sometimes that's a that's a product of who's in the division at the time. But if you think about it, walking around GSP, he's what is he like walking around? He probably walks around on a two hundred or so, and he's looking for a fight with Khabib, who probably walks around at one seventy. I mean, so he's going to dwarf him. Uh, he dwarfed BJ Penn when they fought. You know, he was a, a bigger guy. Um, I feel like the Matt Hughes fight though they were pretty even. I don't know for some reason GSP to me, and I think he got destroyed in that Hendricks fight. That was just a, a highway robbery on that one. But to me, I don't know. I was just thinking to, about his career. Does he have the resume to be the greatest of all time? I mean, he, obviously he's he's up there. I, I would put him in top four or five, but top one, I don't know. My my view is that his resume is the most impressive in terms of the challenge because that 170 division was one of the best divisions in the sport. And he was just beating one after another, after another, after another in a way a lot of other people weren't doing. And I think Anderson Silva, I think, fought over the course of his career, more high profile names. But I think George fought more people that went into the fight with a lot of momentum, with a, a feeling of you know, real difficulty to defeat them and then found ways to beat them. Like, I, you know, just as, a, as an example, John Fitch, who went into that fight with, you know, 20 or so wins in a row and just winning, 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 winning until he met George. You know, Sean Shirk was, you know, unbeaten for years and years and years and years loses to, 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 to George St. Pierre, you know, people, people like that, you know, Trig, Koscheck, um, Shields, just a lot of really difficult people to defeat and, and from different styles, Tiago Alves. I mean, Tiago Alves was destroying people heading into that George St. Pierre fight. And he just, he just put away Alves. Like it was no problem. He's definitely one of the all time greats. I just, I, I don't know, for some reason I can't put him over even in his prime Fedor who was great just because I love the way he fought. Like, oh, Krokop, you're great on the feet. All right, we'll fight on the feet. Big Nog, you're great on the ground. We'll fight on the ground. Like, I, It's just a different style. I know G GSP would probably, you would say, would be maybe a smarter fighter in, in that aspect. But I don't know, for some reason to me, Fedor is just tough to be because he never really lost in his prime, quote-unquote, those prime years. Sure, Verdun, but I think that was kind of leaning towards the end end of his prime. Um, John, obviously, John Jones is probably maybe even above Fedor now because he literally has never lost, um, period. So it, to me, Jones, Anderson, Silver, Fedor, I could be crazy on that, but I always put them a step above GSP, even though GSP is, is an all-time great. 
Todd, tell me, speaking of John Jones, um, it's my opinion that in his last two fights in particular, he has been looking like he's slowing down a little bit. He just looks like he's that little bit weaker the last two fights. And Unmotivated, maybe. He did lose to Thiago. So what, what do you think? Do you think that's the case? Or do you think it's just re- two really, really tough fights for him? Or... Oh no, I'm with you. I think he's 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 a declined fighter. Um, I mean, he's still a really good fighter because I mean, he you know he's been dominant for such a long period of time. But yeah, he's not. He he to me does not resemble the same John. Well, I mean, he resembles him obviously, but he's not. He's not the same John Jones that we saw. Uh, that was dominant for so many years. I mean, I think that he is he's vulnerable at this point. I think he he could have lost either of those two decisions, and I think if he he keeps fighting, he's going to lose one significantly in you know, the next two or three fights is my view. Well, now he's jumped up to heavyweight and that's real danger because if he comes up against Nganu and catches a couple of, um, a couple of hooks, I would actually be worried for him because Nganu has, seems to have found a new lease of life. If you remember when he lost to Stipe Majocic, it wasn't particularly impressive at the time. And after that, Nganu had another couple of poor fights and it's ever since then that he just seems to have found a new lease. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean it, he's he's so big. I mean, obviously the question is, would would Jones be able to get him down like he did with Stipe, uh, like D- Stipe did with him rather? Um, and if he is, then that's a different fight. But yeah, I mean, I'm so frustrated by the matchmaking on that one because to me they should really have done John Jones versus Francis Ngannou first. Because I think Jones versus Ngannou, of all of those permutations of the fights, is the biggest. It's just the most compelling the idea of this guy that was a dominant guy, light heavyweight, going up and meeting this you know heavyweight monster striker. is just such a compelling fight. And I think it's more compelling than than um, John Jones going for the title. And so you do that fight, that's the biggest of them all. And then afterwards, if Jones wins, then he's going after the title. So that's a really big fight as well. Or Ngannou wins, and then the Ngannou uh, fight with Miocic feels a lot bigger. So like to me, the idea of doing Cormier versus Miocic, uh, Cormier, uh, Miocic versus um, uh, Ngannou first, and then John Jones is, uh, is just so much worse of an option than doing Ngannou versus Jones first, and then the winner against Miocic. That, that one really frustrated me, um, not only because I think it, it'll lead to less, a less interesting to fight combination, but also I think they left a lot of money on the table. Do you think they're protecting John Jones? Maybe that's why that first fight wasn't made, because Dana is afraid that if Nganu does somehow smash John Jones that all of a sudden he's lost, you know, that's the end of John Jones there and then, or do you think that's a little bit over the top? It's possible. It's possible. I'm not sure. I mean, that that could be part of it. Part of it could be uh, Jones just wanting the title fight at first. Part of it could just be Dana thinking, well, that's a title fight. The title fight's the biggest thing, so let's go to the title fight rather than wasting, you know, risking something else in, in the interim. But like I said, I don't think jo- Jones versus Ngannou is a risk. I think that's, a you know, the biggest fight of the whole group. Well, I have to be honest, Todd. I don't see crowds coming back anytime soon. I really, really don't. Because it's just so, it's so crazy what's going on right now. And it really doesn't seem to be an improving situation. So I'd, I'd say for now, they're going to stick with Abu Dhabi where they have a partial crowd and so on. For some big pay-per-views, like I would imagine the trilogy fight between Conor and Poirier, whenever it's made, I heard a rumor of May would probably be back in Abu Dhabi. Have you heard anything about that? Um, I had not heard that specifically, but that's my assumption as well. I think it's going to be a while until things get back to normal. Now, 
it's it's possible UFC just gets sick of it and says, you know, tech with this, we're going to run in front of crowds because I mean, you can run in front of front of crowds if you want. I mean, we had the you know the college football games here, which were in front of you know <laughs> big packed crowds. The last huge crowds, yeah. The Pat last Canelo fight, you know, it was like there was no COVID. You had like these swarms of people that were all, you know, together, not wearing masks in this arena. It was kind of ridiculous. Um, help, heck, the, the the bare knuckle show, um, not a lot of social distancing in a uh, in an indoor crowd. So it may be a case that UFC just says, "Hey, we're going to Texas, whatever." Um, but it, assuming that they continue to be responsible, yeah, I think Abu Dhabi is going to be the. Uh, the central location for, for quite some time. Well, I was speaking to you earlier, Todd, uh, going back to wrestling, about how they could have done something different when COVID came along. And going back to the Firefly uh, Funhouse match at WrestleMania between John Cena and Bray Wyatt, I remember JP speaking specifically about how he really did not like that match. Um, I was wondering what you thought of it personally. I thought it was something very different at the time. I actually did enjoy it to an extent, but that could also be because the bar has been lowered so much that something different comes across as good and it's not necessarily good, if you know what I mean. What did you think about that match? I, I hated it. Um, I, I can understand why people would like it because there was an element of creativity to it. And I think increasingly a lot of wrestling fans are people that are more into things like comic books. So the idea of pro wrestling is, you know, colorful characters, there's some athleticism, but it's about sort of over the top um, hijinks and whatnot. And so the idea of like a comedy sketch being in place of a match is, is okay to them. But I mean, my, my background is I, I got into to pro wrestling because it was a simulated sport. I liked other sports. It was a larger than life sport, like atmosphere with big characters. And that's just the atmosphere I like, you know, the new Japan approach, um, the, the, the ring of honor approach when it's been, it's at its best. That's, that's what I prefer. Blood sport. I, I enjoy very much. So um, that, that's the way I like, pro wrestling to be presented and so you, you know you advertise a match and you just do a comedy sketch that's that's not at all what i want pro wrestling to be i want it to be about people you know fighting to resolve their differences and proving who's the best in the context of a, a simulated sport jp do you still feel the same or have you changed your mind at all about that match still hate it i just uh, didn't like it at all i know the reason behind it because john cena had an insurance policy and i guess he's not able to get hurt or they don't want him to get hurt so they put him out there and that so i just i just didn't care for for that at all i did like undertaker aj styles though i like that match a lot i just didn't care for the uh, the fun house yeah uh, a lot of people have said that but what do you guys think about them switching over to the the boneyard match would you have about the same type of feeling about that? Or did you think that that was pretty decent? I thought the Bonio match was much better. Um, mm -hmm. I thought, number one, I just thought it was better done. It didn't have a lot of the sort of the hokiness of the, uh, of the Cena Bray Wyatt sketch, but it also had more of sort of the, you know, rubric of a fight. And, and that again is um, sort of what I, what I prefer. So yeah, I, I thought that the, uh, the Boneyard match was a much better example of the, uh, of that sort of thing. And I thought the Boneyard match is the best of the, uh, of the, uh, you know, so-called cinematic matches we've had this year. Oh, last I, year. 
by far was the best cinematic match. I just enjoyed it. It kind of reminded me of like an old uh, John Wayne gunfight or an old Clint Eastwood kind of gunfight. It was just cool. The way it was done, the physicality, the, the look of it, everything about it, I, I really enjoyed. AJ bumping around like crazy. Obviously, Undertaker did his job well. Um, I like the intros, the music, the lighting, everything. I think they just knocked it out of the park. And the physicality really sold me. I just thought it was a great match, great little um, run-ins and stuff, and, and Gallows and Anderson getting beat up. It was done really, really well. Todd, do you think there's any future in that type of match, even when crowds do come back? For example, protection of older athletes, pe you know, people that they might want to keep around, but they can't really manage a half-an-hour live match in front of a crowd. What, what do you think? I mean, I think there is going to be a future of that sort of thing because I think it's popular enough with enough fans that they're going to continue to do it. I'm not a big fan of those. I'd like to see fewer of those, um, but I think we're going to continue to see them. But I think we're not going to see them in, in the same volume that we did during this time period because – you know, a, a big part of why it, it, it's okay for now is that you don't have those live crowds and so you can cut to these matches and it's just, you know, it's just another thing on the show. Whereas when you get back to live crowds, if people are paying, you know, $200 for a ticket and they, they don't want to watch, I don't think, a uh, even a particularly well-produced cinematic match on a screen, I think the live crowds can react negatively to that and that's going to, you know, that's going to hurt the, uh, you know, the hurt the show because the fans are going to, um, greet it not too favorably in my in my view i feel like i'm liking them less and less like i like that one a lot and each one after i feel like i'm liking them a little bit less i'm with you so do you think that should be something that's once every three years for example something like that sounds about a good ratio to me <laughs> I, yeah, can, I can i can get involved with that definitely well, not like like when some of those matches were kept for for more special occasions you know so i don't like the idea of a hell in a cell pay-per-view i prefer when a hell in a cell was for a special match in particular oh yeah i mean they've really shot themselves in the foot with that one because when you do it every year then it, it just becomes like okay here's like our little fun you know fun event for the year we're gonna have our elimination chamber we're gonna have our hell in a cell we're gonna have our tlc matches and it just becomes it, there's no gravity to the situation because it's just about fulfilling the annual thing and it doesn't necessarily correlate with whatever's happening with the uh with the the um the feud at that point in time whereas if you as you mentioned build it up so that it, it um it, it's the resolution of a feud and used at the right time then you can start to have that importance like oh this feud's been going on for a little while it's really you know it's a big rivalry we need the hell in a cell to resolve this thing and prove once and for all who's the best or we've got these two wrestlers they're really spectacular they you know they uh they want to prove who's the most athletic who's the most exciting we're gonna have a tlc match we haven't had in a while you can make it feel a lot more important a lot more exciting if you do it in that context and i i think that the the you know the branding it the other way was a big mistake i think there's close to no positive that comes from it it's almost entirely negative the switch from um using those stipulation matches at the time that was appropriate to you know just naming it after the stipulation and putting on the calendar todd where do you sit on the whole argument about today you may have um, answered this earlier in more ways than one but for example, the fans that watch today will mostly say they just prefer to see the matches and they love, you know, Finn Balor and all of the just general great athletes. If you were to be, if you were given the choice 
I believe um, Will Ospreay is your favorite wrestler of today. Would I be correct? Because he's no, I, I wouldn't say that. Wrestler. Um, I mean, I think Osprey is great. Um, but who would who would be my favorite wrestler of today? Okada. Jeez, I mean, I, I might even go Minoru Suzuki. I just enjoy the heck out of him. I like Moxley a lot too, and I think I like Cody in his own way. I mean, he's not the same in ring guy, but I think he tells great stories even if the shack thing's a little bit of a step down so those are those are a few of sort of my uh my di- i think very highly of adam cole so those are a sort of group i think they really dropped the ball with cody and wwe todd i think he i think he's a big star i really do i think he's got tremendous potential both on the mic and in ring yeah absolutely so like as far as like if the question was like do i prefer more of an in-ring style versus more of a you know sort of like an older story storytelling Sorry, style i should have I, said todd i should have said um, say for example rock versus austin build up to wrestlemania or an okada versus osprey which you know is going to be a phenomenal contest i mean and and it's it's a you know it's a bit of a cheat but i why can't we have both? I mean, that's that's what I'd like to see because, I mean, there are people that criticize today's wrestling for saying that they don't like the in-ring style and what's it, what it's become. And I am not on board with that at all. I think the in-ring style today is exciting. It's athletic. It's entertaining. I mean, granted, there were great wrestlers in the past as well, but I think that the wrestlers of today are great and we get all sorts of great in-ring action and the overall standard is much higher than it was in the past. So I love today's in-ring product, but as far as like the uh, the feeling of excitement, the feeling of of, uh, of interest in what's going on with the feuds, the quality of the promos, things like that from the past, I think it was, it was better then. And so I just like to merge the two, you know, have better told stories, get people reinvested in caring about who's going to win and who's going to lose and then having the great match and you can have your cake and eat it too. I don't view those being as being mutually exclusive. So I, I'd love to see um, a promotion find a way to mix the two. And I think AEW is making their best attempt at it. I mean, I think they're a lot better show than WWE. They've had their hits and misses, but I think they're generally moving in the right direction as far as investing people in storylines. And then the in-ring action is is uh, is exciting as well. New Japan Pro Wrestling, I think, does a uh, you know a great job overall with it. Um, and I think there's a lot of interest in their key stories. I mean, like, yes, the action was really good at the Tokyo Dome last year, but the idea of Naito finally going for the title after, you know, having a bunch of hiccups along the way, while at the same time, Ibushi's won the G1, he's gunning it for the first time. I think there's a lot of investment in what was going to happen there um, on, on top of the fact that it was going to be in, good in-ring wrestling. So I think I think you can have both. It's just a case of, um, you know, number one, telling g- good stories, but also... I think sort of reacclimating fans to a different way of thinking about the wrestling business and um, trying to dissuade them from the both these guys, this is awesome, you know, sort of this we're we're thinking of it as a performance art approach to trying to teach people to pick your favorites, root for the favorites over the people you don't like as much. Well, JP and Todd, how do you think they go about bringing back the casual fan? The casual fan that's no longer watching. What is going to gain the interest of these guys to bring them back to weekly television? Especially in a time when we all need entertaining television on a weekly basis. Something to take us away from the general day-to-day, which is harder now than it's ever been. Where do you think they start? 
That is uh that's a tough one because I feel like they were starting to get a little bit of momentum from the casual fans on SmackDown because of Roman Reigns and Sasha Banks. But it that is really, really tough because you, you think like, oh, he brings maybe celebrity might pop it. Like that doesn't work. Bring in Bad Bunny, he's got you know a billion followers or whatever it is, and that doesn't work. You know, it's like they're like trying and trying, and trying. Maybe they're not trying with the maybe the right celebrities at the right time. And now Bow Wow is gonna come in with his, you know, 30 million followers. It's like, but how do they people get their fans to come over with them to grab them it, it's hard to do but reigns for a little bit i feel like he's got that movie star rock you know obviously his cousin but he's got that quality about him and sasha banks seems like she's getting a lot of attention the nascar thing was, was great um the star wars thing was great even though they don't promote it um but i don't know i feel like somehow some way somebody's got to kind of crack through and and do that um in order to become a mainstream star and i think those two, you can start with them. Maybe they can get some mainstream publicity from those two. My my one word answer, and it's easier said than done, is is stakes. I think you need to infuse stakes into what's happening. Um, in that, you know, wrestling. If you're just sort of watching for like a fun show, there isn't the same need to tune in on a week to week basis. In order to get people reinvested and to bring in new fans, I think you have to make it feel like what's happening is important. And, you know, sometimes people will think like, oh, WWE can get some momentum on this or that. I don't think WWE, as it's currently constituted, is, is, is able to gain momentum because you watch a show and of the matches that happen over the course of the week, 50, 60 percent of them will have a distraction finish, interference finish, a, you know, a count out, you know, some just all of this, you know, these these constant schmas finishes and it educates fans that match results don't matter because people aren't beating each other. They're just sort of they have their little feud with each other. They go in circles, they trade wins back and forth and they just move on to somebody else and then they trade wins back and forth. There's there's no stakes in what's happening because everyone's just in the same position. And then you have a lot of these comedy vignettes, a lot of the comedy talking. Um, the wrestlers are just sort of these um, interchangeable pieces. So it doesn't feel like what's happening with them is important. And to get people reinvested, you have to make the people feel like what happens to this wrestler is really important. Like if they lose a match, that's a really bad deal. I really need to see this person win. I want to see them hold titles. I want to see them succeed. And there are all sorts of different ways you can do that from the way the announcers talk to the quality of the promos we talked about earlier, the interviewers, how they, the interviews, how they, how they describe it to the way matches resolve themselves. The winners move up the card, the losers move down the card. Um, there's all sorts of different ways you can do it, but that's the bottom line on everything is infusing a stakes. So when people tune into it, they say, hey, not only was I entertained by this show, but I want to know what happens next week because where this is going is really important. And and there isn't that feeling when you watch Raw of like the next or, or SmackDown for that matter either that like what's going to happen next week is particularly important. That's that's the key to the whole thing. In my what I used to love what I used to love about it, Todd, was you'd watch the weekly television. And you see a rivalry being built up. You see great promos. You're not going to switch the channel during great promos. And the way I always used to look at it was you really wanted to buy the pay-per-view because the match had been built up so well that you're really looking forward to seeing it. But when you're seeing the same match every single week and then they just have another one at the pay-per-view, what exactly is the point? There's and people no... are in the same the same position regardless of what happens. You know, like look at this yeah. next elimination chamber. You've got you know Miz and and Jeff Hardy and Randy Orton and just the same cast of characters. And like they've wrestled a thousand matches over the last ten years. But like, what did any of those matches really matter in the big picture? They all just sort of stayed in the same place. Fifty fifty booking is never going to work, Todd. 
you're never getting anybody over there's no investment in the product no investment in the result well okay that was a good match he won so what you know what i mean like there's just no there's no emotional attachment either if you get what i mean it's just match after match after match and any rivalry they do often begin sometimes is forgotten about the next week there's just so little effort in in creative it's it's very very scary to me personally and it worries me when i see the deals like the peacock deal so no matter how bad your product is it's still worth billions of dollars so why bother with creative if you don't have to yeah and i mean eventually it's going to catch up with them and if they continue the way they're going and because they've been able to continually monetize while not needing to have a commensurate level of popularity at the point that people recognize their popularity is no longer commensurate with with, 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 with what they're getting paid the crash is going to be a lot harder than it would have been if there was a gradual decline and so i think people sometimes will miss the peril of the current trend of popularity which has been you know start with the attitude error and just sort of declines plateaus declines plateaus declines plateaus that's not that's not sustainable indefinitely so it's so at some point they need to create new fans and create new interest in what's going on and i, I don't think their their current approach is, is uh, has any has any chance of doing so yeah but jp thought there doesn't seem to be any any um there doesn't seem to be any consequence as far as the networks go. I mean, you would think any other show that's this bad and is continually lo losing viewership. And okay, I believe SmackDown has gained about 70,000 viewers recently, but come on, 70,000 70, is not an awful lot when you're talking about millions. So why why is there just no consequence for no matter what they do? They just, they're still on the same, they're still on the show. Like normally with another show, if it's losing its viewers all the time, they will cancel it. And there just doesn't look like there has been any consequence because WWE has not tried to change anything creatively, especially. Yeah. Well, it's a number of things. I mean, financially, they're a very well-run company. So they've found ways to get business partners invested in what they're doing. And they still have a base of an audience. It's not it's not as, as, as big as it once was, but they have a sizable audience based on, on that past popularity that appeals because a lot of other things have declined as well. And everything's become, um, you know, decentralized. There are so many different ways that... Uh, th that people can tune into different products in different places. And so the fact that they've got this built-in base, even though it's declining, still has a lot of appeal to networks and still has a lot of appeal to streaming services. And they've been very smartly able to, to capitalize on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that they've got enough success that they'd be able to keep going either way. But um, in a lot of other mediums, if you had that sort of decline, you'd eventually have... Um, the you know the person that's guiding the creative direction on the chopping block, but the issue there is Vince McMahon is so associated with professional wrestling; he's the greatest wrestling promoter of all time um, that it's it's very difficult for someone you know on the outside or the inside to say, "Hey, we need a change in direction here," which is, I think, what what you need. Well, speaking of uh, WWE today, Todd, if you go back to when it was at its most successful, the Attitude Era. How do you feel about that time in wrestling and how do you feel about the hate that Vince Russo has has received all the way up until today? I, quite frankly, I think it's just crazy.
Well, there's a lot, certainly a lot of vitriol, but I am definitely of opinion that Vince Russo was a very harmful, um, had a lot of, did a lot of harm to, to the pro wrestling business um, in terms of a lot of his philosophies when born out did a lot of harm over time. But yeah, I mean, he was, you know, he was a part of the, you know, very successful period there. And the basic notion of speeding up storylines, focusing more angles and having more of a focus on the undercard programs and the midcard programs, I think in particular were very successful during that time period. Um, as far as my overall view of the, the attitude era, I mean, some people think of it as a, period where a lot of mistakes were made and it caught up to them later. I don't think so. I think of it more in terms of it was a period when they got the big stuff right and they've lost their way in a lot of the big stuff that they were getting right during that time period. They haven't been able to get as right since then. So that's my basic outlook on it. JP, how do you feel overall about the Attitude Era? Did you overall absolutely love it or did you have any criticism of it or Is he frozen? <laughs> yeah, I yeah, don't see looks anything. Like looks like he's frozen. Okay, bad timing. Um, Todd, what about um, what about say two thousand and two onwards? Do you feel that it was a very very slow decline, or do you feel that when Rock and Austin left, it kind of it lost a little bit of its um, or more than a little bit of its uh, stardom? I mean, it's certainly been a slow decline. Um, you can point to some periods where there was more of an in increase in the decline. I mean, the, you know, I, I don't want to pick on him too much because it was uh, in some measures beyond his control. But I mean, the JBL time period during SmackDown was a period of, you know, pretty big decline. The the period over the last uh, year and a half or so has been a period of, of more significant decline as well so there have been some periods there that have been um worse than others but yeah i think since 2002 on it's largely been uh a period of of things not going particularly well i've heard um, a couple of opinions saying that they believe impact television or sorry excuse me impact wrestling is the best product today with the least audience or with the lowest audience how do you feel about impact wrestling as a whole at the minute I definitely wouldn't agree with that. Um, I think that there are positives to the impact product. Um, there are also some negatives to the impact product. I think they've done a um, a good job overall, I think, with the storyline with the, the wrestlers from AEW coming in. I think Scott Demore is good as like an authority figure. I think they've done a as good of a job as they can of getting what they can out of their talent roster. I think there's also been um, a lot of, not very good stuff you know the stuff with the you know the the rascals vignettes the 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 sue young stuff the um wrestler house stuff there's been a lot of awfully bad stuff on impact so i think on balance it's been i think a good show but it's one with significant positives and significant negatives um yes yeah, so that's my overall look on, on on impact these days and what's your favorite wrestling show today todd um, I'd say AEW, I think, uh, top to bottom. I think, uh, you get good wrestling, good storytelling overall. Um, I would say, I would say AEW. I think the ROH show is also very good. 
Uh, I, you know, they just, you know, they cut promos on each other. They talk about why they want to win and then they have wrestling matches. It's, you know, very straightforward presentation. I like new Japan strong as well. You know, it's good. You know, it's a good straightforward you know, wrestling product as well on a weekly basis. And how about you, JP? What's your favorite to watch today? Uh, pretty much the same. I would say probably AEW. That's the one I probably watch week in, week out. Sometimes they frustrate me a little bit, but overall, um, They've been, you know, fairly decent show to watch every week. ROH, I do like. I like the way that they present. New Japan is very good. And now I'm starting to watch New Japan on Roku. I know it's old episodes and stuff, and it's they're showing old stuff, but I've been really loving uh, New Japan pro wrestling for sure. What has been the format on that? Because I haven't, I haven't seen any of that yet. So they say that the episodes come out 5 o'clock. Wherever you are, if it's 5 o'clock, you get the episode on Roku, on the Roku channel. But if you just go to that channel and type in New Japan Pro Wrestling, you get the whole season of 10 episodes. So it is basically a breakdown of last year. So it's 2020's Tokyo Dome. So the first episode is Jay White against Naito, the whole match. So it's about 40, I think it's 47 minutes. Then you have commercials and stuff. The match itself, I think is 40. So they space it out and they have the commercials, they have intros and they have uh, the outros and they have the um, uh, post-match interviews and stuff. So that's on there. So then the next one, uh, which is a full episode is Abushi against Okada, which probably my match of the year, just awesome match. Uh, that and that is about 45 minute match. So that goes the whole episode. Then the next episode after that is Naito versus um, uh, uh, Okada from the fifth when they had the show on January 5th at the Tokyo Dome. So and then then, then they're going to play them out of order, but it's the rest of the Tokyo Dome show. Okay, cool. Todd, how do you feel today? Um, the attitude towards wrestling reporters in general, you know, some see them as just dirt cheat writers some see them as journalists how do you how do you feel about the attitude for example where a lot of them have never been in the ring and therefore some people feel that they shouldn't that they can't really take an opinion of someone who hasn't actually been in the business how, how do you feel about all of that it, it's hard to say because i don't know that i have like a handle on what the overall view is because i see different views and i don't know how common each of them are like i know there's a group of people that i think give more respect to wrestling journalists than did in the past where there's you know a lot of respect for opinions that are paid and you know a lot of you know a, 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 a lot of interest in, in what's written about it but there's also I'll, you know i'll see on twitter a group of people that seem to think that wrestling journalists are basically um you know, don't know what they're talking about, don't have real sources, aren't worthy of any respect. Um, and it's I, it's difficult for me to gauge how big each of these audiences are. Um, so it's, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the, what the median viewpoint on wrestling journalists is today. I think there's, you, you get a lot of differing viewpoints and I don't know how many people hold each of those, those views. How do you feel about it, JP? I feel like there's a lot of unnecessary hate towards a lot of them for whatever reason, um, because they've almost become as popular in, in Meltzer's case. I feel like he's more popular than some of the wrestlers, which is crazy, but he is the best. If you go back and look at historical stuff, like when I do shows and stuff, it's like, oh man, where, you know, where am I going to look? Where am I going to go? He's always got all the information. Like Kevin Sullivan will say, hey, what's the buy rate and stuff? And, and like WrestleNomics might have it, but WrestleNomics, they always got their stuff from Meltzer. So his historical facts and, and his 
basically what he's done with the business for the last 40 years has been so key in keeping the business going and knowing the past of the business. So I feel like a lot of these guys are necessary and, and maybe people don't, don't like Melzer's opinion. Oh, he likes Kenny Omega or whatever. That's fine. But his historical stuff and, and the stuff that he has that, that is based on all the facts that he has. I love that stuff. I love going back and looking at stuff. Oh, how did they do with the cow palace in 97? How did WCW do here? How did WWF do here? And he's got all that information meticulously in the observer and even on the torch wade keller's got a, a ton of good information so even if you don't like their opinions i feel like they are very necessary to quote uh, masvidal super necessary and very kind of important to the business because they're the ones that have been keeping it going if you don't have historical figures and stuff it's like people may forget i mean you can watch tapes and collect tapes but they have the facts that go with it you know they'll have match times you which people kind of make fun of but i always am interested like oh, i wonder how long hogan warrior was wrestling oh wow that went 29 minutes i don't know like the, the stuff that that you may think is boring or minutia or, or not necessary i think it is necessary and it's historical and it's it's a big part of wrestling business so uh, kudos for Meltzer for the amount of work and hours that he's put into the business all these years. Yeah, the thing that's striking about some of the criticism I see of Dave, and it, it goes to why I, I answered the way I did about not really knowing what the consensus view is, is there's clearly a lot of people that are just ignorant of what he does. I mean, I'll, I'll see like the way that he's criticized about certain things. It's clear these people just have never read anything he's written and don't understand what he's doing. And it's, you know, it's sort of this secondhand um, sort of viewpoint of, of, of him from, I don't know, like Bruce Pritchard or, or whoever it's from. And it's, it's just sort of weird. I, I, don't, I don't get the sense that a lot of the people that are throwing out that criticism really just have a basis of understanding what they're talking about, which isn't, which is different than saying they're wrong. It just, I, I, don't, I don't think they even know, you know, what they're saying. I don't think they know what they're criticizing. I think sometimes people get on him for believing sources. Like for instance, let's say Terry Taylor or something is feeding him stuff and he might be making himself look good or Heyman is feeding him stuff. So I guess people can get on him like for that and maybe um, believing those guys too much or putting stuff out there, but his historical stuff and the fact that he works like hundred hours a week on every promotion and, and knows his stuff. And I mean, he's just a historical genius as far as the wrestling business. I feel like you got to give him credit because you don't have guys like that. Then, you know, how do we know stuff from the past? Like, how, where do you look? You know what I mean? He's, he's like the history book of wrestling for the last 40 years. So to me, I, I mean, I love the fact that he puts so much work and effort into it. And I love looking at the Observer for all that stuff. Maybe not for the, oh, the Bucks are great and the star rating and stuff. I think some of that stuff gets kind of mixed in. But his facts and his history stuff, I love. Yeah, it's really a big benefit to the wrestling business because I, there, there really is nobody that has been so single-mindedly focused on just gathering information about the wrestling business. And it's it's a tremendous resource we have. I mean, I, I don't think a lot of mediums have that sort of thing. I'm, I'm, I remember the first, the first couple of times I met Dave, um, I was struck by how with a lot of, with a lot of people, I would assume, I, I, my assumption with Dave, given that he covered the wrestling business so much was that outside of the context of wrestling that he would just want to talk about other stuff, you know, that he would be, you know, bored of talking about wrestling all the time that he'd prefer to talk about sports or family or anything else. 
And the thing that you notice from Dave, from knowing him over a long period of time and, um, you know, and, and seeing him in events and, and whatnot is that, no, he just loves talking about wrestling all the time. <laughs> He'd just rather talk about wrestling than, than other things. And it's, you know, it, it's that sort of like eternal interest and curiosity to learn more and to, you know, to devote more time and to devote more resources to exploring everything about it is, um, you know, really, uh, you know, really been beneficial, I think, for, you know, for everybody in, in, in the wrestling community. Well, I honestly think, Todd, overall, I do class you as a journalist because I think that your reports are very articulate, they're very in-depth, very detailed. And I also think you never come across as biased in one direction or the other. I think you cover it in a balanced way. And that, to me, is the most important thing. Even if I disagree what somebody is saying, I still appreciate the fact that they're not heavily posed in that direction, unless it's classed as completely obvious. But yeah, I just thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate on. that. And it's, it's difficult to do because um, I think with some people, you get into the trap of wanting to be what you just described, which is wanting to be fair-minded towards everyone. And I think that often leads people down the road a road of not being sufficiently clear about what's good and what's bad. And so you've got to find a way to, in my view, to be honest and straightforward about what the good things and what the bad things are without worrying about being perceived to be on the side of one thing or another. And that's, that's a tricky balance because, you know, you can fall into the trap of, um, having something against certain, you know, promotions and just getting, having such negative associations to what certain people are doing that it, you know, it consumes you and you don't see the good about what they do or the positives or when they do something good, you miss it. But on the flip side, if you are too, you know, you, too, you try to do too, too much of, of, of both sides, you end up being the, you know, the journalist that is not, calling people out on their on their nonsense and so it's it's a tricky balance and i think it's it's particularly tricky in wrestling because you know as we've talked about the the major league of professional wrestling in the world is WWE, and they haven't been producing a very good product for a very long period of time and it's it, it makes it a tricky business to cover because you know you want to acknowledge that reality but at the same time, you want to be fair about what they do right and wrong. And, you know, I think people fall into the trap of, you know, of both those traps. Well, funnily enough as well, I remember you reviewing Kane's book. Glenn Jacobs <laughs> did a book and you were saying how it was it was so heavily. It was so heavily on the side of WWE, you know, always just constantly saying about how good everything is, etc., etc. That's that's what I mean. You don't just go along and say, oh, well, you know. You're calling something out for what it is. You know what I mean? Like he's he was heavily in favor of WWE in every way, but you were just outlining that as well. Yeah, I mean, so, it, you know, it's the it's a balance of everything. It's obviously it's trickier if you're you know you're associated with a company for twenty years. I mean, you you know you you want to come across as being fair-minded but you know you also know where your your bread is buttered i mean that's you know that's been the issue with mcfoley over so many years is you know is i think he recognizes you know some of the uh you know the downsides to thing ww has done and at times he um you know he 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 mentions it and at other times you know he's this is a company that's you know that's bought him tons and tons of money and uh you know he wants to be on the good side of so it's a 
it's a tricky balance. I don't think I don't think Kane did a very good job of balancing it in his book, but you know. <laughs> Definitely not. Actually, um while we're on the subject of being balanced and overall opinions, what do you guys think of the John Cena era overall? In the sense of do you think Sorry, do you think he was overrated or do you think that, you know, he, he did such a good job of maintaining his spot and so on and the booze that he received, do you think they were fair, unfair, or do you think that was mostly WWE's fault and how it was directed in terms of creativity, etc.? He's a tricky one to me. I think, uh, I don't know, it's very interesting with him because he's like the last real big star that they've kind of had for a long time. I mean, I guess you could say Reigns, but Reigns I don't think is in Cena's level really as of yet. So he's just an absolute huge star. Obviously now he's going to be a, a bit of a Hollywood star and we'll see how far he gets up up the ranking there. I don't know if he'll get quite up to the rock level of being the highest paid uh, actor in, in the world and stuff like that, but um, definitely like their last big star. Maybe hamstrung by the, the PG era of things. I feel like ever since the PG era, they've been on that downward trend and I think a lot of TV shows and a lot of that medium has been on that downward trend for years just because of streaming services and different stuff, but uh, I feel like, I don't know, maybe he came around at the wrong time as far as maybe he would be viewed better if he was from the Attitude Era or something, because you know, the, once you get to that Rock Austin level, Hogan level, I mean that's just astronomical. That's huge. Seen as like a one step below those guys, and I don't think he was able maybe to reach that or maybe reach more of his potential because I think PG held him back a little bit, and I think the booing of him and the cheering of him somehow work for them because the merchandise of the fans of the people that loved him they went even more nuts like oh i'm buying all of his shirts i'm gonna buy all this i love him so much they they were just so loyal to him they loved him so much and that's why they kept him on top for so long i mean he was just a huge star and huge, huge money maker as far as merchandise and it was fun kind of going to the shows back then where he would get booed by half and cheered by the other half but he's definitely probably their last big star yeah, I view the the Cena period as being a, a a very bad period for the company. Um, obviously, he was a bigger star than they've had since, but I think that him on top of the company created the disconnect I was talking about earlier, where a lot of fans became disinvested in the stories they were telling because they just didn't want John Cena in that top babyface role, and they didn't like it, and it created a you know, a, a, a schism that's sort of existed since then. It's made it, it's made it harder on Reigns, made it harder on, on other wrestlers. It's made it harder on the company to um, get people involved in the storylines again, because people were just so checked out on the idea of John Cena as the protagonist of the story, which is what they were making him. And I don't think that the, 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 the divided crowds were a good thing for, um, for the show, because I think, I think there's an underestimation of the overall negative feel towards Cena. I don't think that was a sort of like a fun, we're enjoying rooting against John Cena thing. I think it was a broad-based frustration with the fact that this guy that they didn't like was in this position at the top of the company, and they wanted 
you know, to, to go back to the, what we were talking about earlier, the investment in the stories, like people during the, you know, during the Austin period really cared about Steve Austin and wanted him to win. And the people who did not like John Cena had to put up with years and years and years of the storylines all being crafted around the idea of John Cena prevailing in the end. And that's just, there's, that creates an emotional disconnect and caused a lot of people to just watch the good matches and, you know, put their mind aside as to what was going on with the stories and the titles and everything. Cause John Cena was on top. And I think that was, I think that was a real bad thing for the product. Um, as far as who's to, to blame for that. I mean, there's plenty of blame to go around. Obviously Cena was given the direction that he was, but I think on a lot of things, um, there were a lot of things he did that I think he probably recognized were, um, were, were hurting him in certain ways and were not things that he liked that he just did because he didn't want to rock the boat. And that wasn't really the way the company was structured at that time. And I think that, you know, he, if he'd put his foot down, I think it probably would have been, um, been a better character. I mean, I think that the description of it being G or PG, um, I think now we sort of understand what that means. I don't think it's an issue of like the language thing, but it's an, it's an issue of the approach where this guy comes out in just like these tacky, colorful t-shirts covered head to toe in this tacky merchandise. And if you're an adult, you're a guy, you're like, you know, just what a corporate tool this character comes across as just like this corporate shill, you know, dressed like an idiot, making jokes about he's dressed like an idiot and cutting promos, not about himself, but about how much the, how great the company is. And just like, what a, you know, what sort of hero is this? Like, you know, to go back to Connor earlier, you know, if Connor was, you know, dressed head to toe in like shiny UFC, like headbands and, you know, earbands and whatnot, like he wouldn't be the star that he is because people don't want that out of the, out of, um, out of a star. And so I think he had um, responsibility as well for the way that, you know, the way that that went down. I have to agree, Todd. I really think a lot of it came down to creativity because I remember watching it at the time. And before the tacky shorts came along, I was even starting to get a little bit bored. But when that came along, it started to turn into more of a hate thing because it was too forced. I think they were just constantly trying to force it all the time. Even when they were doing interviews, you know, something about the attitude era Cena would always be in that. The camera was always on him. It's just, there was never a moment where they weren't actually forcing it on the person. It was almost like they're trying to say, they love him and you're going to love him too, regardless of what you think. And that's, that's how it came across to me. But I think creative has an awful lot to do with that as well, Todd. I think it could have been done differently. There are different ways around things. For example, when Rock beat Cena in Miami, I was there that night, and I can honestly tell you it felt like the ground was shaking beneath. People were that happy. And for the following year to just go back and say, right, well, now Cena's going to get his win back, and he's going to win the belt as well. So it's almost like it's almost like giving the bird back to those fans, if you know what I mean. I was there for the second one. The crowd was not, the, the ground was not shaking in joy. I can tell you that. In New York, no, I was <laughs> yes. there too, unfortunately. I know there was a lot of booze. But um, it, it's just, it. I don't really blame it on Cena. As a matter of fact, I met Cena in New York that weekend. There was, um, for package holders, I bought a package, the travel package. And um, Cena was at one of these charity events and we got an invitation to it. So, Cena came up that night and I actually went over and I shook his hand. And I said, John, I said, I'm, I'm not a big fan. I said, but I do respect you and I do understand it. So 
I said thank you. You know, it's it was just my way of of kind of saying I'm not one of those people that just hate on John Cena. It's it's not the person; it's the character as well. I wonder if you're right, Todd. Maybe he could have said more too. But then I guess if you're in a position where you're dominating and you're making all that money, maybe just maybe we wouldn't want to rock the boat either. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, he worked really hard. I mean, you can't you can't take that away from him. No, you can't and... deny it. But that was the other problem, Todd, is that they were constantly saying, this guy works hard. He does this. He does that. You know, they're saying it as if nobody else there was working hard. And that simply wasn't true. You can't say that Punk wasn't working hard. You can't say the other people weren't working hard. It wasn't totally fair, you know. Like I think Vince has an awful lot to, a lot of blame to take for that situation. And regardless of what anyone says, I do fully believe Todd because I do, I don't want to be too blunt about how I say this, but I do think the crowd is easily manipulated at times, just by just with good creative and so on. So I just don't think your top baby face should ever be booed. I think there's something wrong if that's the case. Oh, yeah, I'm completely with you on that. And the, the frustrating thing, too, and this is something that JP alluded to earlier, is they've been doing a great job with this Roman Reigns character of late. I mean, it's been the most compelling stuff they don't had on their television f- for Since years. Since they heel, of course. And absolutely. I mean, the heel turn has been a tremendous success. I think he's a really interesting character in that role. And when he turns back to a baby face, because the fans got that catharsis of having him be the villain, I think he's going to be more popular by a wide margin than he ever was before. And I think it absolutely would have happened with John Cena as well if they'd done it. I'm also convinced, JP, I don't know about you, but I think also if they had a turn Cena heel, it would have got such a reaction that people actually might have even started buying his shirts just to prove a point. I don't know if you think that sounds crazy, but I'm convinced at least a portion of the fans would have all started buying his shirts if he comes out with new merch as a heel. Just out of, you know, thank God, thank you. you Well, I think if you really look at it, when he was popular, the business kind of sunk ever since. So obviously that popularity, like Ty was saying, led to a lot of like a schism where fans were actually pissed that he just kept winning and winning because he kept getting the ratings and, and the buy rates. Everything got less and less popular. But if he would have turned heel, it would have been great. It would have been a Hulk Hogan NWO moment. And I think people would have just gravitated to that and they would have bought a ton of mer- merchandise the other way. Maybe the people that weren't buying his merchandise would have been buying the merchandise. I think the heel turn was necessary and, and it should have happened and would have been cool. And it was like kind of what we're getting with Reigns now. It's like, oh, they're never going to turn him heel. They turn him heel. He's this awesome character. He's got Heyman with him. He's got all this kind of cool, like, mafia stuff going on. It's just, to me, I I, I like the Reigns stuff, and Cena should have turned. And not to get too wrapped up in it, but, the, you know, sort of the, the laments of the past, but they had the perfect guy opposed to him, too, in CM Punk, because CM Punk symbolized all of the things that people didn't like about John Cena, he had the opposite of it. It, it was a it was a perfect contrast in personalities for them to have the you know the baby face that would have stood in contrast to what people didn't like about Cena. And that works also well, Todd, because controversy does create cash. <laughs> and when they hear people like Punk saying things like that, it's it's almost like finally, well, someone actually gets it. Someone is speaking on the microphone through us. You know that's absolutely. Like, the wrestling fans don't really have a voice as much as WWE might say they do. They really, really don't. So I just think that it's moments like that. I mean, they never go to controversial topics. There are a range of things that they could do today with the Black Lives Movement and so on. There are things they could incorporate into the show that would actually catch people's attention. That's what I believe. They are not capitalizing on anything that's going on outside of the ring. 
Yeah, you got to be careful with that stuff though, because you can yeah, you, you can turn off people at the same time. And there have been people that have come, you know, forward with ideas like that. Kevin Sullivan wanted to do sort of a, uh, you know, a, a sort of po- political based angle that I think was sort of a, a precursor to a lot of the stuff we're seeing in terms of the divide in our country right now. And um, you got to be careful how you do it because you can. Uh, you can, you know, for some people, like the idea of like wrestling being a place where they don't have to worry about some of the stuff they don't like about real life can be a, uh, a positive. What do you think, JP? Do you think it would be better to take more risks, even in today's cancel culture where you have to be really, really careful, etc.? Do you think it would, would be worth gaining more fans or do you think they would do more damage than good? You could do more damage than good. I would love to see it just as a fan perspective because do something to infuse it, make it a little bit more creative, a little bit more interesting. But they're afraid of losing sponsors and stuff like that. So I don't think that they'll be too controversial uh, for sure. And Todd, how do you feel about Nia Jax? I've, I only heard about it last week. Or was it this? Was it Monday night just gone or was it last Monday? It was last Monday. They did a follow-up this Monday. Okay. So what did you think about that? Funny or just completely ridiculous? I was amused by the ridiculousness of it. I mean, it was it was just bizarre. It came out of nowhere. Um, I mean, I don't think Nia Jax provides a, a lot of entertainment on a week to week basis. So, um, something where you're sort of laughing um, ironically at what's going on is a is a step up from what you often get with her. I agree. I think often she does more harm than good, but. Um... I guess that just comes down to opinions at the end of the day. I haven't seen an awful lot of her work. So as I said, I did I did stop watching a while ago. I just You're lucky on that front. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do ask myself that all the time because if you're being paid, I would honestly have to be paid. And even then, I still think I'd be losing brain cells while watching it because when I look at things, I look at it through an analytical point of view. That's why I'm I'm a fan of you because... I just look at things and I say, hold on, this doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. That's stupid. This is, and now when I'm watching any television program now today, I do the same thing. I'm looking for a good story and I'm looking for them to, to wow me and to keep me, to keep me gripped. Yeah. Two things. Since you watch things like Breaking Bad, which are phenomenal. And then you go, everything just seems to go downhill from there. There hasn't been a lot of great series since, you know, your Sopranos, Sons of Anarchy, Breaking Bad, that sort of thing. I just think it's all gone downhill since then. Oh, I don't know about that. I think there's been plenty of uh, of good television myself. The two the two things though. One is I was I was specifically talking more about Nia Jackson specific. I mean, you can say what you will about the product um, in general. The product in general at least has highlights. Nia Jax. Um, I can't really think of many highlights in Nia Jax's career, so um, you're, you're you're not missing out there. But that's in terms of the television. I mean, yeah, that, that's another issue for for wrestling in terms of the storytelling is that it used to be with television shows that that, that these television shows would get ordered for you know twenty four to thirty episodes a season. Some of them was even more than that. So you'd have these long seasons all around the calendar of these shows, and they'd just be you know cranking out the same shows over and over again. And now so many of these shows, it's you know it's twelve episodes, it's ten episodes, it's eight episodes, it's six episodes, and so these people are crafting very carefully everything that you're seeing over that little short time period. And you might have a season, I mean, like, um, you know, Fleabag, which got a lot of positive buzz that second season of Fleabag was 
I think six episodes of 30 minutes. So in other words, you had three hours total of this thing that, you know, was crafted over a long period of time. And that's one episode of raw. It's, you know, it's very difficult. If, if you're framing yourself as a sport, you can compete with other sport. If it's like a sports like product for three hours, because other sports like products, you know, you just have the athletes go out there and they compete and that's your product. But if your idea is to be more like a television show, these other television shows are devoting so much more time and effort to making everything click and everything, you know, all the storytelling do well. And you just don't have the time to do that in, in when you're producing, you know, seven hours of, of, of television a week. And for everybody listening today, what would you recommend to watch at the moment? What series have you found engrossing? Oh, I mean, there have been so many. Um, what have I been? I struggle even know where to start. Um, what have I been enjoying? I mean, I was uh, just because I just watched it. There was a little. I mean, this wouldn't be at the top of my list, but um, a little mini series called "The Lady in the Dale" on HBO, which was about this um, transgender woman who created a who had ideas for a three wheeled car, but it wasn't really. Uh, it wasn't really. Uh, designed and so she's you know she's trying it's essentially a scam and she's you know running from the uh the government afterwards that was uh that was interesting i just watched the uh uh judas and the black messiah on hbo max i thought that was a really well done movie um what series have been yeah i'm just having trouble remembering what what, I, what i've even watched because there's just such a volume of it uh well, I'd love to recommend to you guys to to everybody listening to watch Wentworth at the minute. It's a very underrated series. It's Australian and the production is not that big, but the writing for the most part has been excellent. They are up to series eight now and next season will be the last this upcoming season, which begins in July. So I would actually recommend you have a look at that. What about Ozark and Better Call Saul? Two great ones. I would imagine most people um, went over to Better Call Saul right after Breaking Bad because they knew, oh, yeah. to, for the most part, what to expect. I felt an awful, uh, there was an awful hole in my life after watching Breaking Bad because it was so good. And sometimes when you watch something so good, another TV series, which was generally excellent, might not appear so to you because you're expecting something to trump what you've just seen. That's what we always want, but obviously that's very hard to achieve. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I just finished Ozark a, a few months back, and I really enjoyed that as well. Um, and I hadn't watched Secession, the first two seasons that came out, and I watched that recently and really enjoyed that as well. So those are a couple more. I would imagine everybody has watched just about everything right now with the uh, rolling lockdowns and so on. I would say Netflix have done quite well for themselves. Mm-hmm. All the streams. Maybe you should do a yeah. show, Todd. <laughs> yeah i mean there's certainly there's certainly lots of uh it's, it's it's probably a good time to be a television reviewer too because like there's so much that was difficult to keep up with and a lot of a lot of these reviewers i'm sure are just going back and getting to catch up on things that sort of slipped through the cracks because uh you know there's just so much stuff you can't keep up with it I agree. I've, I think I've exhausted nearly uh, every option. I've started to go back and watch a lot of old stuff because there's nothing but time at the minute, unfortunately. So we need something to keep us entertained. And, and I guess the other good thing that we can all speak of is 
we can speak to each other over the internet. You know, we're lucky we have all this. You know, if this had it broke out about 15 years ago, it would have been a different story. Whereas podcasts now are just are really beginning to get more and more popular. And I believe they'll really explode over the next 10 years because there's so much excellent information you can find on there and so many people doing their own thing. And and you can also listen on the go. So you don't have to be sitting there watching it. You can listen through your headphones out for a walk, out for a run. Or these days, I actually listen to podcasts now while I'm gaming. And it's a great thing. <laughs> Awesome stuff. Now, as we head towards the wind down, head towards the finish, Todd, please give us all the plugs where everybody can find you and everything you've got going on. Uh, sure. Yeah. So uh, my Twitter handle is Todd Martin MMA. So if you want to find me there, you can. Um, I do my weekly podcast with Wade Collar called The Fix. It's at ProWrestlingTorch.com, PWTorch.com. And that's a subscriber show. It's VIP. Um, so you have to subscribe. I think it's great content, and there's a lot of other stuff you get with uh, with VIP at the Torch, old newsletters, a whole cavalcade of podcasts, all sorts of stuff. And you also we'll do we'll give a free sample of the fix every three weeks or so on the free version of Wade Keller's podcast, Wade Keller Processing Podcast. You can uh, find free samples there, and I'll put that up on Twitter as well. I also do a, a weekly MMA column the bot, called The Bottom Line. Wonder where I got that from at Sherdog.com. So you can uh, also uh, see my writings on MMA uh, there each week. Derek, what do you got? Give us all your uh, social media plugs. Uh, not too much at the minute, guys, uh, but you'll find me on Twitter at, at Derek O'Reilly13, and you'll find me on Twitch, DKO1988. Of course, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Two Man Power Trip. Check out the website, tmptempire.com. And of course, Patreon, patreon.com slash tmptempire. Todd, thank you so much. Derek, great job. Thank you as well. Appreciate all the time today. Thanks, Todd. It's been fun, guys. Thank you very much, JP and Todd. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Two Man Power Trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash tmptempire to become a patron. And also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two Man Power Trip, where the power lies brother.